Are you interested in learning more about owning your own portfolio cash flowing rentals? If so, we invite you to take our free mini course, the Crash Course in Cash Flowing Rentals. When you take our mini course, you'll learn the strategies we use to build our portfolio. You'll also get to see several of our students featured who have successfully built their own portfolios as well. To take our crash course, link to semiretiredmd.com forward slash mini course, M-I-N-I dash C-O-U-R-S-E, or visit our website at semiretiredmd.com and link to the crash course on cash flowing rentals there. You may also want to join a waitlist for our introductory course, Zero to Freedom Through Cashflowing Rentals, while you're at our website too. We'll see you there. This episode is sponsored by our brand new course called Fast Fire Bookkeeping for Real Estate Investors. Do you have a pile of receipts and a bunch of statements that are stacking up in your office and the pile isn't getting any smaller? Are your rental properties getting you closer to financial freedom? Do you even know how your properties are performing? Well, the answer to your problem is doing your books the right way, and that's what our course is about. We'll teach you how to set up your books the right way, not just for tax time, but also so you can unlock the insights that will help you maximize your cash flow. For more information or to sign up, go to semiretiredmd.com forward slash bookkeeping. Welcome to the Doctors Building Wealth Podcast, the place where we talk about the strategies, habits, and mindset that separate wealthy docs from those who are not. We're your hosts, Leiti and Kenji. In this episode, we welcome Dr. Russ Richmond to the show. He is a physician entrepreneur and has been the CEO of several successful companies, including his most recent venture at a company called Laudio. Russ is someone I first met many years ago at McKinsey & Company, where we worked closely together providing management consulting services to large hospital systems. I was always impressed with Russ's leadership and his ability to build teams and create followership, which I believe is an underrated quality of an effective leader. If you don't know what I mean by followership, you won't want to miss this episode. With that, let's welcome Russ to the show. We are so excited to have Dr. Russ Richmond here joining us as a guest. He is CEO of Laudio and longtime friend of Kenji. Thanks, Russ, for joining us. And can you tell the listeners a little bit about you? Oh, it's so great to be here. Thanks, guys, for having me. Um, Yeah, as you mentioned, I'm, I'm a physician, but for the last 15 years or so, I've been involved in a number of different ventures, including management consulting and entrepreneurship. I'm also a family person with three kids at home between the ages of 10 and 14, and I live in Newton, Massachusetts. And you and Kenji met back in McKinsey, right? We did. We actually got to work closely together on a couple of projects. It was really fun. And that was when we were doing health system operations and transformation work. And, you know, the McKinsey models that you co-locate with your clients. So uh, Kenji and I would fly into wherever the heck we were. I remember North Carolina for sure, Kenji, but yeah. it might've been a few other places too. And we would live there Monday through Thursday together. And every day for you know 12 plus, at least 12 hours a day, we would be in the health system or hospital, in, usually in some back coat closet somewhere, but working with the executives on transforming the hospital. And so 
you know, you get to know somebody pretty well during that time. And then, of course, you get to grab dinner afterwards and catch up on more personal level. And I always really enjoyed uh, working with Kenji. And we actually had a really great team there, Kenji, if you remember. I do, so, yeah. Yeah. Well, for sure. I think, uh, you know, a big part of that was was you, actually. And so uh, that's something that we definitely wanted to talk about. But before we do that, I would love to know kind of about your transition from, you know, medicine to McKinsey, because, you know, we, you know we've had these conversations personally, but I'd love to kind of, I think our listeners would learn a lot about that transition, the, the decisions that went into that, why you made that decision. Yeah, you know, I didn't make it very far down the medical route. I completed medical school and then I did my internship in internal medicine and pediatrics. And that's when I decided after my intern year that it probably wasn't the right career for me in terms of sort of the laying on of hand side of medicine. So, you know, the rationale, it's interesting. I have to kind of rewind the clock and there's what I told myself at the time and then probably with retrospect, what I see now. But at the time, I could see that, well, first of all, I've always been an entrepreneur. So even in high school, I built businesses. And I grew up in Cincinnati, Ohio, and the local docs when I was going through were still also like individual proprietors or business owners. Mm -hmm. And so I think that was part of the attraction. Um, I didn't fully kind of click into that at the time, but as I look back, I see that. But then when I started, you know, my residency and, you know, I got a pretty good look in and I'm not pretending that residency is a full look into what practicing medicine is like, but it's enough. I realized that, you know, it's a job with a lot of repetition. And I think to be a really, really great doc, you've got to not mind the repetition. And you also have to, you know, be able to give enough uh, of yourself to your patients to connect, but not allow them to take too much from you. And I sort of failed on both dimensions. I feel, felt like um, as someone who was used to a lot of variety in life and all the other things I've been doing before, and I was mostly in the ambulatory setting, the office visits and even rounding in the hospital was, was a lot. And then also, I would feel really emotionally drained by the job as well, I should say. And I was actually early to admit and realize that myself, that you know, while I could do it for 10 years, I knew I couldn't do it for 30. And we were in the middle of the first uh, dot-com boom at that time. So it was the late 90s, and um, there was so much going on. And all of my I also am very interested in science and technology. All of my science and tech, you know, neurons were firing. And here I was, I was in my residency and I was doing intern, you know, stuff. And I knew that there was other things I wanted to do. So that that's what kind of nudged me out. And I got very lucky in that I was I was interning at University of Michigan uh, hospitals in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And my residency program director, who was a guy named John Frona was so supportive. I, I told him halfway through the year, I was like, John, I don't know. I, I, I actually just won an award as a, as a good intern, basically, within my class. And I, and I couldn't celebrate it. And I said, I, I don't think this is the right job for me. He said, hey, take a year and figure it out. You can always come back. And so I basically quit without a job wow. and took the time to figure it out. You know, there's a lot of familial expectations and things that some of us, some of we physicians have. I was the first physician in my family. I, you know, I just recently gotten married. I'm also married to a physician. And I had a lot of loans, like a lot of physicians do. So it was an awkward time. But ultimately, kind of taking the time to go out and look around and figure out where in the world I should be was the gift. And John Fronick helped, helped create that for me. And ultimately, that's how I found McKinsey & Company in terms of consulting. 
So one thing I heard you say was just really those familial kind of expectations of the path you were going down. And I know a lot of our students who are being both physicians and now starting these real estate portfolios are struggling with that too. Do you have any advice in terms of how to manage the expectations of your family and all your friends around you when they're maybe not as supportive of your path that's a little bit different from what they expected from you? Be brave and do not listen to that. I, I, I just, I really strongly believe that because I also think though that it's gotten easier to have a dual track career or you know triple track career and not in the triple threat sense of being a doc and doing academics and teaching and clinical. I'm talking about like in a divergent sense of having multiple things at once, side hustles, all those things. And I know this because I'm actually very frequently tapped to give advice and counsel to um, physicians that are struggling with this and where to go and how to navigate it. Back when I was in the transition phase, I was called a quitter and I was, you know, shunned by part of my community, part of my uh, residency class for moving aside into a different role. My, my closest friends stuck with me and they're some of my closest friends today, but it was, there was a lot of personal risk socially as well, which we should add to the table. And so my advice is to listen to yourself. The, the clock is ticking. The longer you wait, the longer you wait. And it can also happen gradually. So side hustles can turn into major parts of your portfolio. I made more of a binary choice because I was leaving a training program. And others may be in that role as well. But I just said, listen to yourself and make the move and have the confidence that the skills and training and other attributes you have that got you through medical school and got you into being a physician will stand you in very good stead prospectively in whatever career you pursue. Wow. Yeah. One of the things that we say is that, you know, surround yourself with good people, right? People who are doing the things that you want to do, right? And did you have any of that, any community, anybody around you that was, you know, doing what you wanted to do uh, that influenced you during that time? Yeah, you know, uh, I didn't mention this earlier, but I have an identical twin. And my twin brother was at that point in the business world and in the business community. And at that point, he was an investment banker, but he was banking all the new tech and biotech companies. So I did get a look in through him and understood a little bit about that world. But I would say largely I was on my own. I mean, I had my twin brother who was also young in his tenure. And the way I solved the gap is I started networking. And I think we call it networking now. But I basically said, okay, every week, I'm going to try to have coffee with two people that I don't know. And this was challenging. I lived in Ann Arbor, Michigan, which is a small community. For those of you that don't know, it's about 30 miles from Detroit. So it's next to a bigger city, but it, you know, it's a town of like 150,000. But it is a university town. It's got a couple of venture firms. It's a bedroom community for Detroit. And it's got all the things that come with the university. And so I started out the only place I knew, which was like the tech transfer office inside of the university, which, you know, is like processing patents and things like that. And I got in there. I was like, whoa, this is not what I want to do. Mm -hmm. But guess what? The tech transfer office knows a couple of people that are have just recently built companies. And every coffee, I said, look, they have to give me two other people to have coffee with. And it very quickly, you know, it's a sort of an exponential strategy by definition. And I kind of stuck to it, maybe a little bit overly, but um, 
very quickly, my schedule just filled up with meetings of people. And I would just, just lay it on the table. This is who I am. This is what I'm thinking about. And I started to learn the world and I learned that network. And it ended up being a very focal outreach because I was in a smaller network. But, you know, three months later, I kind of knew everybody. And it was then that, and this is a, you know, the degrees of Kevin Bacon from where I started in the tech transfer office. It's, I don't even know how many. It could be like 10 or 12 meetings away from that in terms of progressively introducing. I met someone that was a partner at McKinsey. And he said, we need physicians. And it sounds like you could be interested in this. You know, have you ever heard of McKinsey and Company? And this is what we do. And I had I had not heard of them. And he said, why don't you come down to the office? And um, we're interviewing MBA candidates. Why don't you come in and just interview? And the interviews were four days later. So I called my my twin and I said, yeah, I think I said I'm interviewing at some com- company called McKinsey with like E-N-Z-I right. or whatever. And he was like, you mean McKinsey? I was like, yeah. He was like, you need to prepare for those interviews. <laughs> and so I went to the business school library and got some like prep book and eventually got the job. So that was how it all, you know, that's how it worked, but it was really by taking the time to network. And then each of these network meetings are little, little mini mirrors that hold up various reflections of yourself and what you can look like and start to kind of get a feel for what those options were. And I finally bounced into someone that had a job, which, you know, for those of you that don't know management consulting and McKinsey is where I met Kenji. It's basically a variety pack of roles and jobs. So your your job is to counsel senior clients in a variety of industries. I was a physician, so I was focusing mostly on healthcare. And but it can be in anything. It can be pharma, it can be device, it can be healthcare services work, it can be payers, it could be consumer-related products, and it can be across a variety of roles. It can be on strategy, it can be on operations, it could be on finance, it could be on purchasing or lean or whatever, whatever, whatever. I mean, it was just basically an opportunity to learn a bunch of stuff that I didn't know. And when I looked at that role and I looked at the job and I looked at the anything I could gather on the internet about the company, I was like, this seems pretty fun for a couple of years. And that's how I got in. I kind of viewed it as my MBA or whatever. That's awesome story. So I want to just pull out a couple different parts. Yeah, for sure. So number one is you had this goal, which I think is very cool of talking to two different people every week and then having each person give you two more. So you had a very clear outcome, right? That you could adhere to that had metrics, right? That you would know if you were succeeding. And mm-hmm. that that's so cool because you could keep yourself accountable. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I also love that, you know, each person was a mirror for you and could give you the picture of, of what your life could be. And it sounds like something very important to you is variety, right? That you're describing all this different variety. And it's so cool that you could see that McKinsey was the variety that you were yearning for when you were in training. Yeah. Interesting. I was going to say actually that uh, he had the right mindset, yeah. right? Uh, going in, he said, basically, like, don't listen to all the doubters, all the people who are telling you, you know, you're making a mistake, right? So you you had the right mindset, you had the right strategy, right? Mm-hmm. Which was call two people, but you were disciplined and you had the habit of not, not giving up and keep doing it. You may almost made it a habit. It was just like a, and you just kept repeating it. So I thought that was kind of cool to kind of bring in all those things that ultimately led to success. And it's so that's such a great tip because I get this question all the time about how do I get into McKinsey? And I'm like, you know, network. And, but I love, uh, but, but like giving them a more tangible, you know, 
go meet two people and then ask those two, you know, ask those people to give you two people and your calendar will fill up. I think it's so valuable. And when you think about real estate investing, this is also really applicable Mm -hmm. because if you know what you're looking for in a property and you go around telling everyone about it, like you don't know who's going to have that connection that you needed. Right. And it might be a random person in your office who actually has a friend who's trying to sell something. But if you don't go around telling people, they don't know. Yeah. Exactly. The message gets out. I mean, it's a, it's a form of marketing uh, yourself or your desires. And I couldn't agree more. I think it's really important. And I'm kind of looking back at that time and thinking about that time and what my psychology was, you know, it's challenging, right? Cause you're going out on your own. You feel very exposed. I felt under supported. I felt super supported by, by my wife. I should say that I did have that which is amazing. And I forever will give her credit for like helping me maintain my mental health during that period, but um, not really supported by anyone else. And by laying out this plan, I had something I could hold myself accountable to. And the other thing I remember is that in the earlier days, I had a lot of free time. So I don't know how many of the folks on this pod will quit their jobs and then start something new, which is what I did, which is a little bit riskier. But, you know, looking for your next thing is it's not at first, it's not a full-time job. You cannot fill up, at least I couldn't, 50 hours, 60 hours a week of just looking and networking. It, it's kind of impossible because you're on other people's schedules. You're subject to their calendars. It takes a while to rev up and get going. Eventually you may get there, but for the first few months, it takes time. And so it's really good to have like the internal confidence to say, I'm on track if I'm doing these basic things. I happened to paint the exterior of my house and my other spare time because I was like, hey, the house needs painting. It's completely unrelated to my job search. And it's something I can do to contribute while these things are revving up. And I sort of had those dual kind of goals. Uh, Honestly, one sort of very career focus, which is networking and meeting and the sort of exponential viral way that those meetings were going. And one just, I'm going to paint the exterior of this whole house. And those two things kept me through it. That's so funny. Yeah, actually, that, during during COVID, right? How many of our students told us that they actually use real estate investing as a distraction for all the hardships they were going through, uh, seeing COVID patients, you know, in the ICU or whatever. So that was kind of a kind yeah, of yeah, cool and making thing. progress, making, making progress. progress that's what right. you're describing. So you went from McKinsey then to working as an entrepreneur in startups. So can you tell us how that transition mm-hmm. happened? So. I should say that when I first went to McKinsey, I thought I would only stay for a couple of years because that's what most people do. And it's very up or out there. And so, you know, it's kind of hard to hang on. But then all of a sudden I was six years in, I was a junior partner. And as I mentioned before, I've always been interested in the entrepreneurial side, but the McKinsey model is that as you kind of get more senior and as you want to get promoted, you really need to be serving big clients, right? So I was serving some of the fortune, you know, 50 or 100 in terms of size of clients and was being encouraged to do more of that. And um, it just wasn't where I saw the action, to be honest, from an entrepreneurial uh, standpoint. So I was realizing that in a big way. And then I had this insight. Again, I, I was always networking when I was at McKinsey employee as well, because you meet your customers and you meet people at conferences. And I just, that, that never left the hustle of meeting new people and the curiosity of finding out what else is going on in the world as never, it's still, it's still a big part of what I do. So 
I met someone who was the CEO of a Boston-based, I lived in Boston at the time and still do, a Boston-based healthcare data and analytics company. And it was really the one of the first big data companies in healthcare. And uh, this is in, let's see, this was in 2006. And I immediately saw the connection because the first part of every McKinsey project is you're pulling the data out of the client systems. That's the very earliest part of every project is to get the information. And then once you have the information, you can kind of figure out where the facts are and you know, then how to counsel the client. And here, this company had basically automated the getting of the information and some of the early machine learning, and this was dark ages relative to what we can do now, around um, developing some of the insights and was providing that directly into healthcare. And I saw it and I said, this is definitely going to be the future. Like, I just knew it. I knew it right away. Mm. I liked the uh, the CEO. And I reached out and said, I think your company is really neat. And within like a month, I had a job offer and I moved over. It was it, it happened very quickly. Um, and so the transition was, you know, for me, as I think about it, it was, I, I, I was moving into a completely different industry and wor- working in a completely different capacity but I wasn't yet fully going out on my limb as an entrepreneur with zero income, right? Mm-hmm. I had this opportunity to sort of see an entrepreneurial activity that I could go to while I had my first child at that point. And yet it was still a very young, you know, it wasn't pre-revenue, we had revenue, but a very young company. And I could see that equity and options and those things could be valuable. And they were. So that ended up being a good transition for me, where even though I could change some dimensions of what I was doing, I wasn't changing everything. And even though I could take some risk, I wasn't taking 100% all risk. And I could kind of have my boat, my foot on the boat in the dock at the same time and start to become more of, a, of an entrepreneur in the business world using some of my clinical knowledge and consulting knowledge. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah, one of the things I wanted to kind of talk about with you, and this this is, you know, this is something that I've observed, but also uh, something that I've experienced, which is, you know, your ability to kind of create that type of followership, people following you from company to company, or wanting to work with you on projects at McKinsey, right? And uh, that type of leadership, but also the ability to kind of create teams, you know, I think is definitely one of your skills. And so. Can you talk a little bit more about kind of, you know, what is your thought about kind of building teams? Like, how do you do it? What do you, what do you think are some of the kind of keys to, you know, building a successful team? It's a great question. I think that the people, the people you choose to work with is the most important decision that you can make in any business venture. And it's, it's, it hasn't always been perfect for me, but it's been pretty good. And once you find good people that you like to work with, it almost transcends the business itself. For me, I care about them as almost as family members and partners. I don't necessarily think about hierarchy or employees. And I'm egalitarian in almost any way that I can be, either in the way I choose to transmit hard-hitting feedback to the way I try to be fair and, and reward and be generous. And it's something that takes extra time, but I don't know another way to do it. If I look back in my life, the one or two times I've not done that are the one or two times I felt most ashamed of my involvement. And so I do tend to be a leader that leads with transparency and candor and emotion 
I don't hold myself. I don't hold the me back from it. I don't try to make it a sterile business leader. Very frequently, I'm friends with the people that I'm working with on my teams. I don't know another way. And so that involves putting yourself out there a little bit and taking a little bit of risk. And what I've found is that it's almost always reciprocated. And trust and a trust-based relationship is just the foundation for anything, good times, bad times, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that that has created a group of people that I've worked with that know that they can lean on me for certain things. So whether it's, if they're in different jobs, it's like references or support for their own careers, investments in their own companies, I've done that a bunch, or um, referrals to business relationships, or for people that are working with me, they know that I'm going to take care of them even when things get tough. And that's worth a lot too, because things do get tough. You go through things like pandemics <laughs> and you've got to be there for people. And that doesn't mean that I'll drive a business into the ground and you know do crazy stuff, but it does mean that on balance, I'm pro compensating, rewarding, and creating more of a family at- atmosphere within the companies that I work with. The other thing that I do is I stay in touch with people. And that's been, it's the most basic thing but not enough people do it. I think it's almost like being your own little CRM and occasionally reaching out and sending updates and connecting. I've done it formally on an annual basis in San Francisco, where there's an annual conference that a lot of my network goes to, which is the JP Morgan healthcare conference. And I host a dinner there every year and, you know, we'll have 30 or 40 people come every year. All of them are connected to me. Now they're all connected with each other, even if they're across different parts of my life. And it really does feel good to convene and bring together and stay connected in those ways. Um, and that's obviously a scalable way where, you know, the dinner will be three hours long and I'll, I'll get just a few minutes with each person and all of that, but it's great. It's in person, it's a touch and it's, um, they appreciate the network that surrounds that. And I do too. And then there's one-on-one ways. I mean, um, there've been a number of times, Kenji, when you and I have stayed connected since we worked together. And I can't remember them all, but, you know, obviously one of them is my most recent company and your most recent company. And we tend to sort of have that. And I love that. I get, if I look back at my day, it's that connection point, whenever it happens, will be the favorite part of my day. So I kind of work to stay in touch. I definitely put some energy into it. And that with like focusing on trust and more of almost like a family atmosphere, I think is, I think is at the root of it, but it's just sort of how I operate. And I don't know, does a scale to, if, if I'm ever Jamie Dimon and sitting on top of 80,000 employees, does it scale up? Maybe not, but that's also why I don't do that. <laughs> um, because I, I don't think I'd like it that much. Interesting. This episode is brought to you by Dan Peck of Caliber Home Loans. If you're an experienced investor, you'll know just how important it is to have a lender who knows how to work with investors. Now we've been working with Dan and his team for over five years now, and he's our go-to whenever we need a residential loan for our investment properties. Now, if you're new to investing, you might not know this, but your lender can sometimes be the difference between getting a great deal or completely missing out on it because your lender couldn't close a deal. Now I did want to point out that Dan can help you not only with your investment properties, but also if you're looking to buy a primary residence or a vacation home. So the next time you're looking for a residential lender, be sure to email Dan at semiretiredmd at caliberhomeloans.com to get a free consultation. This week's 
podcast is sponsored by our course, Zero to Freedom Through Cashflowing Rentals. Zero to Freedom Through Cashflowing Rentals is a 10-week online course focused on helping physicians and high-income earners go from knowing little to nothing about real estate investing to confidently buying the cashflowing rentals that will allow them to achieve financial freedom and work in medicine or their day jobs on their own terms. Our course is only open to registration twice a year, so be sure to get on the waitlist at semiretiredmd.com and check out the course details on our course landing page. So Kenji and I, and actually our team, just read this book called Five Dysfunctions of a Team. And in it, it's got a triangle. And the base of the triangle of team building is trust and vulnerability, which is what I just heard Mm -hmm. you explain, like as the core concept of how you approach everything with transparency and being who you are, right? And then one of the ones is also accountability and being able to give that hard feedback to a person who really is kind of your family member who you've developed this trust and vulnerability with. And for purely selfish reasons, I want to know more about that. Like, how do you manage that conversation, these difficult conversations with team members who are not living up maybe to your standards or doing what's right for the company? Because I also think this is very relevant to our students building real estate portfolios, having a lot of people like property managers, maybe who let, who in their opinion, didn't deliver. How do you have that conversation in a way that makes everyone feel good? Yeah, that's really interesting. I choose a couple of things. One is I do real time. So when I'm managing my people, while I do have a weekly half an hour or one hour meeting with every direct report. It's just something hygienically I think is really important because it's it provides the, the structure around which a lot of other things can happen. I am the king of the five-minute connection. So everyone who reports to me also is talking to me anywhere from two to 10, to, 10 times a week in little two to five-minute bits in and around that one-hour meeting. And it's, it's interesting. When you do it frequently, the barrier goes down for it. And so these tough conversations get easier. That's one thing, which is it's only when things fester and build up and sort of get into like a, a pressure situation that it becomes really difficult to give the feedback. But, you know, right after you have the meeting that doesn't go so well and someone says something that maybe was suboptimal, a little three-minute thing like, hey, look, I thought overall the meeting's fine. It could have been better if we said this in terms of this. And you know, how would we approach it if we had a different situation and open up the conversation? Or I, I always try to kind of have some positive and developmental feedback when I kind of go in. And it's, it's a five-minute combo instead of like building up into some big intervention. And so I like to do that. And I also, and this gets to my current company, I think praise and recognition is the most powerful management lever. So we tend to focus on the tough conversations. But if you really want to shape behavior, when someone does something really great, you do a five-minute meeting afterward and say, that was awesome. Mm -hmm. And the endorphin and neurotransmitter signals from that intervention will ultimately be what shapes your partner or your employee more than any type of stop doing that intervention that you do. And that's been proven a kajillion times. It's just that no one has the discipline to do it. Mm -hmm. So I, as my main management advice is to, whenever you have the opportunity to do that, do it. And that means that whenever you think about, wow, like so-and-so did a really good job there, whatever the job is, don't just think that to yourself. If you're thinking it to yourself, 
then you you are absolutely beholden to pick up the phone and to call that person or just to text them and tell them. People say, even folks who get a lot of positive feedback say they want more of it. And you know, studies show that people do it like one third as much as they should. So I try to get that balance right. And I know that that is another key ingredient. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah, now you talked about your latest venture. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, Laudio and uh, how that got started and what you're doing right now? Sure, yeah. So this is about five years ago now. I got in a terrible downhill skiing accident and I basically just broke my entire body. I, I like a le- broke 11 bones. I had a traumatic brain injury, et cetera. I tore the ligaments in my neck and I had all this surgery and all this metal put in and femur and, you know, spine and my forearm. And, you know, it just, it was terrible. And I spent three months in the hospital and about a month of that was in acute care. And about two months of that was in rehab. And for the first time as a physician, I was the patient Mm -hmm. and I got to know my caregivers fairly well. And it wasn't the physicians that I got to know well, it was the nurses and the therapists and all the people that were really doing the hands-on, spending real time in the room. Mm -hmm. And as I mentioned before, I live in Boston. I was like at the best hospitals and basically made a full recovery. I'm very lucky. And I just thought what these caregivers were doing was amazing. But what I learned is that most of them hated their jobs. And that was a real set of insight to me that the healthcare workforce is, it's not just physicians. Most of the healthcare workforce is in some stage of burnout. I mean, even more now with the pandemic, but um, it's a pretty toxic place to be. And so I'm an entrepreneur, right? So the whole time I'm thinking, I'm like, what's the solution to this problem? And how do we fix this? And I partnered with, I have three other co-founders in the business, and they're all people that have worked with me in prior companies, um, to our prior conversation, actually. Mm-hmm, yeah. And we started doing research. We started interviewing. We started trying to figure out what the root was of uh, was this problem. And one of the major drivers of this problem is that health, the healthcare workforce is not managed well. Mm-hmm. And there's a variety of reasons for that, which we can go into. But one of the biggest ones is that the span of controls are really high, 20, 40, 80, 100 people report to one manager. So the manager is just basically doing scheduling Mm. and putting on fires. That's all they can do. They're not doing any active managing. So our basic idea is what can we do if we build a platform for the frontline managers? Can this fix this problem? Can we shift the pie chart of their time? They're spending less time on some of the administrative parts of the job. Can we save them time? and spending more time on doing active management of their teams. Could that move the needle in terms of the engagement and turnover and retention and burnout issues that are part of healthcare? And just to fast forward, the answer is yes. I mean, we, we built a platform that dramatically changes the way managers spend their time. It massively reduces uh, turnover and churn of the healthcare workforce. So it pays for itself, which is really important in business is to have an ROI. And the most important thing is it changes the culture of the floor. It improves the engagement, improves the attitude. And the reason for that is something I'll go back to that I said earlier, is that one of the things that we have the managers do more of is praise their workforce, but to do it in a timely and relevant matter. And we're able to help them do that. And it reinforces all the good behaviors. And it became such a big part of what we did is that we named our company after it. Our company's name is Laudio, L-A-U-D-I-O. Audio.com. 
And laudio comes from the Latin root laudara, uh, which means to praise. So it really spoke to the ethos of our company. We named our company after it. It took forever to build the platform because it's it's like a complex thing. There's a lot of data hooks and AI and um, workflows and other things, but it's scaling up now and it's it couldn't come at a better time with a lot of the burnout that's happening. So that's Laudia. I love how you took literally everything you talked to us about, about what makes you such a great manager and leader and like are able to actually free these people's time up, the nurse managers, so that they can do exactly what you're talking about that builds that team and makes people belong to a community and a culture, right? It's it's incredible. It's It's like weaving all the parts of your learning from all these businesses into this. Well, you know, when you when you start your own company, and you know, as I said, I have, I have three other co-founders, so it's really our company. You get the opportunity to do it your way, mm-hmm. and you're not jumping into someone else's legacy set of rules or heuristics or ways of thinking or processes. You're getting to create everything the way that you've always wanted to be for yourself, and that's good and bad, right? Because greenfielding at all sometimes means that you've got a lot of decisions to make. You got to put a lot of yourself into it to make those decisions. But the really great part of it is, is that you get to build on what you've learned over time. A lot of you know, my, my career is, it, it's, it's not necessarily linear if you look at it in terms of like the jobs I've had, but lead you to your point, it is sort of linear as you kind of look at it, kind of putting different things together and reformulating. And that's the way I always think about it. I mean, for anybody, uh, you know, the physicians who are listening, you know, if you're on a team or if you are, you know, you own a clinic or whatever it is, I mean, yeah, I mean, this is... This is probably a piece of medicine that I don't know that many people teach those managers how to manage, right? And so I think uh, anybody listening and wants higher performance from their clinic or or their existing teams, I mean, this is definitely a really, really valuable, you know, potentially a tool or also, uh, you know, incorporating that kind of praise uh, in, in in recognition in your uh, in your uh, in your managers is really essential. But it's not just about performance, which I think is mm-hmm. obviously important, but it's also about the culture and right. people being fulfilled by their jobs and a job being more than just showing up and, you know, clocking in and clocking out, which I think a lot of people in healthcare feel like that's their job now. Mm-hmm. And they've lost that connection, that human connection to the people around them. And then also their coworkers and their managers, mm-hmm. because the, the human connection, nobody makes time for it, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And that's what our research proved before we built this whole thing. What we learned, and this was surprising to me, but is 100% true, and it's true in healthcare and in other industries, is that frontline workers, so, you know, nurses and assistants and respiratory therapists, therapists, and, you know, the list goes on, even custodial staff, cafeteria staff, they connect more to their manager than they do to the institution, way more. It's like two thirds of the connection is the human one to the manager. And one third is the institution or the mission or things like that. That was actually surprising to me. It's been proven again and again in, in, in research. But once you know that it unlocks everything else, and for any of those of you that are listening that are in very busy clinics where the pace is frenetic and there is an environment of burnout, really the, 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 the highest value way to unlock that is through the manager. Sometimes that's going to be you. Oftentimes that's going to be an administrative person or a nurse manager that's working alongside you. But that is the key point of leverage. And then, you know, the rest of it kind of flows from there. But it, I'm surprised at how, how that insight is sort of 
hidden from plain view from all of us, yet it's so true. Mm. Yeah. It actually takes me back to our McKinsey days when we were doing operational work. That insight, exactly. It's just plain view. Most people don't see it. Right. Exactly. Wow. Well, so uh, this has been uh, amazing, Russ. Uh, We always finish our interview with two questions. The first one is, uh, what is your definition of rich? For me, um, I think it relates to time. And it's about, well, it's two things. It's time and it's freedom. So I didn't say this exactly before, but I needed to get off of a treadmill where I was always wedded to kind of unit level direct labor production. And when, when I stopped working, I wasn't producing. And when I was working, I was producing. And, you know, lawyers have that same issue. But it's, it's, it's a really rotten way to make yourself time <laughs> if you're ambitious and if you have a lot of things you want to do in life. So, you know, I knew I needed to disconnect myself from that. And once I got disconnected from that, Meaning finding a way to, you know, either have equity or to earn while I wasn't working as well as when I was like choosing to work. I knew that that time would buy me all the other things I really wanted in in life, which were I wanted to be a a leader and I wanted to have a lot of influence, but I also want to stay very connected to my family. So that was one. I mean, like as an example, growing up, my father was he, he, he absolutely sacrificed his business career to be a great family person. And I will forever be indebted to him. But I saw sort of like a, like a false assumption in there, which is that I didn't have to do that. And so one of the things I do with my time is I try to get more time with my kids and more time from myself. I have a lot of other interests. And then wealth to me is being rich, I guess, is your question. It, once you're rich, you can buy more time. <laughs> mm-hmm. So it's really interesting. You can get off the treadmill yourself in terms of being a direct labor, but you can also sort of lever yourself up and get out of some of the funk that is, is non-value at a time in your own life. And so I found that there, there's a variety of mechanisms that I use to do that. And it's everything from the really mundane stuff, like and this has been years in the making, but not cleaning your own house and things like that to actually more leverage forms of time creation. And to me, that is that also time's the one thing that I feel like you you can't really you can make more of it in terms of in your own portfolio, but you're not going to buy more of it like prospectively in terms of living longer or those things. And so for me, Rich is like all about the time. And it's about getting more latitude around my own time in terms of how I want to spend it and when I want to spend it and not doing it kind of when I want to, and it's being able to lever up around some of the administrative wastes of time and not do those things. And the connection point that I'm always trying to stay connected to, though, is to not get distant, right? To stay involved at a granular level. And so I'm trying to think of examples of that, but I've got a 14-year-old son, and he's now old enough to do big boy jobs and things like that. And instead of hiring the lawn service, which would be emotionally to save time, like teaching him how to do that, making sure that he's on his own understanding of like what manual labor is like and those types of things. That that gives me infinite joy in terms of just passing on some of what I've learned to him. And then at some point he'll figure out like, hey, cutting your own lawn kind of sucks. And I want to go into this entrepreneurial place. And, you know, and so it's things like that that I really get a lot out of and then travel. And our family's done a lot of travel and we get a lot of juice out of that. Of course that's been a little shut down. But um, it comes back to time and creating more of it and getting off what I call the treadmill. 
Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. One of, one of the most valuable assets is time is something we always say. So <laughs> awesome. And then uh, what is one mindset habit or strategy that separates a rich doc from a poor doc? You know, that is, if we want to say something different than time, I do think is having a portfolio of interests is like really important. So many physicians here in Boston throughout their entire life into their work and into their patients. And I'm sure it's really gratifying and I'm sure it's really great to be one of their patients, but they just don't have anything else going on, whether it's spending time with their kids or hobbies that they might develop or uh, side hustles where they've got that, if they have that entrepreneur spark in their nature, where they can start to spin up, you know, maybe real estate or other opportunities. And I always think that things should be in balance and having a portfolio that can stretch across sort of family and sort of civic or other areas of your life, but have a bunch of stuff going on. And that's how you'll feel really rich is when you're able to contribute, when you're able to earn, when you're able to feel fulfilled. I feel like that those are, those are strategies and it's surprisingly obvious, but almost like it's also surprising surprisingly like under leverage for physicians in particular. I think people throw everything they have into their jobs and, and they don't get that portfolio. And so they miss out. Yeah. Yeah. What I just heard was you said fulfilled and contribution. And I think what you were hinting at is growth as well, right? Because you're exploring all these different interests of your own. And that's something that Kenji and I have definitely learned over the last you know, six years is really contribution and growth lead to fulfillment. Hmm. And so, yeah, having those interests. And, and I think self-confidence comes from doing hard things, right? And, and trying things new and, and failing sometimes. Um, and that, that gives you the confidence to know that, that you're continuing to grow and that you can try new things. You can do hard things. So mm-hmm. thank you, Russ. That was beautiful. Mm-hmm. Uh, thank you. You know, I just wanted to add one tiny thought, which was I've been studying some of the Greek philosophers and they have various ways of defining happiness and happiness has been el- elusive and it's, description for millennia now. But one of the ways is defining as action and moving forward. Mm-hmm. And it's the the very notion of taking actions and forward movement that is actually part of human happiness. And that's really true for me. And it, it's kind of true in what you just described as well, AT, is I just feel like it's it feels so good and fulfilling. So anyway, thanks for having me on. And I just, yeah, appreciate what you guys are doing and how you're helping other physicians. And I'm certainly willing to be a resource for others that are interested in anything I'm doing and wish you all the best of luck. Thank you so much, Russ. And uh, yeah, we'll we'll include a link to a video about Laudio and so people can find out more about the company and uh, get in touch with you guys. So thank you again so much for your time. Uh, really appreciate it. Sounds great. Be well. The Doctors Building Wealth podcast provides information only and does not provide any financial, legal, tax, medical, or psychological services or advice. You are responsible for your own financial, physical, mental, and emotional well-being, decisions, choices, actions, and results. You should contact a professional if you have any specific questions about your unique situation.